Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Brian Tokar to talk about his book, Climate Justice and Community Renewal, Resistance and Grassroots Solutions. Brian is a lecturer in environmental studies at the University of Vermont, as well as the Institute for Social Ecology, where he served as director from 2008 to 2015. He's the author of many other books, including The Green Alternative, Earth for Sale, and Toward Climate Justice. Brian, thank you for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. Brian, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I've been, as as you said, a, a writer as well as an activist and and educator for many years. Um, I got involved with the whole paradigm of climate justice fairly early on, really in the mid-2000s when climate activists were beginning to see some of the limitations of the first wave of climate activism and coming to increasingly understand that it's really the people in the world who are least responsible for the problem of excess emissions of carbon dioxide and all the other greenhouse gases who were already at the receiving end of the worst impacts of the unfolding climate crisis. So people in the environmental justice movement and various other movements began framing climate justice. Um, And for me, it it harkens back to work that I did in opposition to nuclear power way back in the 1970s, uh, work on toxic pollution and environmental justice, and certainly my work in social ecology, which tries to offer a very holistic outlook on the relationship between environmental and social problems. And I've been teaching in various places, including uh, UVM, a couple of smaller colleges, and the Institute for Social Ecology has really been my main organizational anchor since uh, 1980s or 90s. Great. Well, thank you very much. And so first question, I think you started to hint at it a little bit. Again, I don't think the idea of climate disaster is unknown to many people, but what brought about your need to create this book? Well, after 10 or 15 years of writing and researching and organizing 
uh, around this paradigm of climate justice, really seeking a justice-centered solution to the climate crisis, and also appreciating the contributions of those often marginalized groups around the world who have been at the receiving end of, of the worst of it. It was clear that for all the resources on climate that have been coming available over the last few years, that there really wasn't a book that focused primarily on the lived experiences of people in the front lines of this struggle, the people who are working to protect their water, protect their forests, develop renewable alternatives at the local level. There are many books on climate policy, climate science. There are several uh, more academic books that focus on field research, but rarely have we heard directly the voices of those people who are either personally most impacted or people who live and work in a sustained day-to-day basis or in some cases on and off for a couple of decades um those places that are that are most impacted so i really wanted to foreground those voices and i feel like we did that successfully in this book uh, my co-author tamara gilbertson has worked for many years with the indigenous environmental network based here in the U.S., but international in scope. And they've very much been at the cutting edge of framing this critique, uh, highlighting the discrepancy between uh, the many false solutions to the climate crisis and what some genuine ones might look like, and working with many of those most affected people around the world. So we pulled together a lot of my contacts uh, around the U.S. and internationally, as well as hers. And I think we put together uh, a pretty comprehensive narrative drawing on people's direct experiences of, of doing this work. Uh, yeah, so uh, you've, you've mentioned two big points of the book. Again, I always hate to oversimplify an entire book in a few sentences. But I, I think something that I took away that I don't think many of our listeners would realize is, first of all, I, I do think many have become aware that those most affected by climate change are the ones least responsible for it, as you mentioned, lower income. What I do think is worth talking about much more, and I think a very central tenet of the book, is that it does seem clear, and I think you did do a good job with the evidence, that the wealthy or government policy doesn't seem to be what's going to solve our crisis. It seems to be the local effort and literally the grassroots movement. And so I know that's a huge idea, but can you kind of talk us through, again, there's plenty of case studies. Can you talk us through that, how that is going to be what saves us in theory? And sure. And, you know, that's not to say that there isn't a role for uh, meaningful climate legislation, which right. is absolutely essential. But the question is, and it's a, a really a big political question as well as a climate-specific question, what really drives social progress? And I've been a believer for many decades, drawing on a lot of research as well as my own experience, that social movements, people being organized from the ground up and putting pressure on various institutions. Uh, at the same time that in many cases, people are working to live 
some of the alternatives that we know are possible and necessary, that those are the kinds of activities that create the kind of pressure, the kind of social momentum, uh, the kind of uh, catalytic force that we need to drive the very huge changes that are necessary. You know, we've been living in the fossil fuel era <clears throat> for the better part of 200 years. The fossil fuel industry, which is responsible for the overwhelming share of global carbon emissions, uh, is incredibly powerful politically, uh, might be the most profitable industry in the history of capitalism. Um, and to overturn the power and influence of those kinds of interests really takes a groundswell. And that groundswell takes many forms, as we see in the book. It looks very different in different parts of the world. But pressure from below, I believe, is what really makes change. You know, and we see that in small ways here in the U.S. over the past many years, uh, everything from local initiatives to raise minimum wages, uh, efforts to uh, create structures of of solidarity and support for refugees and immigrants, uh, as well as various campaigns to protect land and water and prevent the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure, it's more often than not uh, local struggles, again, organized from below in a very grassroots way that uh, have the biggest impacts in the long run over time. And we see this even in the US in the evolution of many of the environmental laws that we take most for granted. Everybody knows that uh, the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act and various other key environmental laws uh, passed at a time in the early 1970s uh, in most cases immediately following the first Earth Day but from the research I've done, it's clear that the reason the powers that be were willing to see those laws passed, and in some cases even actively supporting them, was again because of the groundswell from below. There were laws being passed at the local level, uh, at the state level, all around the country. There were massive lawsuits against polluting industries. And eventually, the powers that be decided that they would actually rather live under a more predictable, even if more regulated uh, kind of regime, uh, than have to face this onslaught of increasingly stringent regulations and uh, increasingly difficult lawsuits all over the country. And I think given the history of attempts at climate legislation in the U.S., which has been very fraught and mm -hmm. for the most part not very successful, even though we have made some small gains, uh, I think that's what it's going to take to change uh the political reality around climate as well and you know again i always i don't memorize the numbers so forgive me but there is at one point a discussion about a report that proved that protest seems to have the largest impact on federal policy not public opinion not local not not sorry not advocacy 
And if I'm recalling, isn't it something almost like nine and a half percent increase in success with? Yeah, something like that. I think you're talking about uh, Professor Erica Chenoweth's research, uh, who's been really looking at the effectiveness of movements uh, in a lot of detail and over a very long time span and really confirming uh, exactly what you said. And I guess movements matter and they work and they make the most difference. And in that same vein, you had mentioned, you know, again, another big idea, the idea of direct action, you know, deeds, not words. And you, I think you even, I think that has often been successfully used, but it's never been climate focused until fairly recently. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's mostly usually been labor and civil rights issues. But now it does seem that there seems to be a swell in climate focused efforts as well. Absolutely. And that really is something that's just emerged over the last dozen years or so. A dozen years ago, people were still lamenting the lack of a significant grassroots action-oriented climate movement. Now, we've begun to see what that looks like. Everything from uh, the massive People's Climate March in 2014 in New York City, where there were half a million people Mm -hmm. on the streets, Uh, for a day to various efforts to stop the construction of uh, oil and gas pipelines, the most famous probably being the uprising uh, at Standing Rock in North Dakota a few years ago. And that was pretty successful until (laughs) Trump got in the White House and approved the permit that had been canceled or reinstated the permit that had been canceled. But that very effort sparked a series of other less widely covered uh, protests against new pipelines in many parts of the country that were successful in canceling the projects that uh, that people were concerned about. Maybe the one that's been in the news the most recently is the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia, which right. we know Senator Manchin has been twisting arms and obstructing legislation and doing everything possible to try to overturn the cancellation of that pipeline. And the cancellation of that pipeline was very much the result of the kind of organized campaign that we've been talking about. And. And I, I think you mentioned Sandy Rock, which I think brings up something else worth talking about. Again, I, I do think that was successful. However, you had mentioned the idea of litigation as well, because while I, it's successful, you discuss in the book how sadly quite a few states have tried to counter protest near infrastructure as a way to kind of make it illegal to protest. Right. So again, there would be a good example of sadly legal action seems to be a requirement in the future as well. Yes, it's certainly part of the picture, and the political climate at the time can have all kinds of effects on the success or lack of success of legal efforts as well as legislative ones. And, and, you know, again, there's many factors I I do like to oversimplify, but in a lot of the case studies, there often seems to be an attempt from a municipal or government agency to to regulate, and it does seem to fail when it's mostly financial based. Would that be accurate? Yep, I think that's true. Uh, we know that money talks in American <laughs> politics and in politics in many parts of the world, and 
it takes pressure from many different directions to counter the overwhelming influence of of big money in our politics. And so, as I've, I've I've hinted a few times, there are quite a few great case studies. And sadly, we just you and I couldn't talk all day about right. them all. But could you walk our, our listeners through maybe one or two what you think are very successful case studies that kind of prove this ground up successful movement idea? Sure. Um, some of the I'll, I'll start out by pointing out that the book is in two parts, right. and the first focuses on. Uh, grassroots resistance to resource extraction and other kinds of climate abuses. The second half focuses on the alternatives, efforts to uh, reclaim community and create the structures necessary for a more livable future. So in the first half, we have stories from uh, Indian country in, in Northeastern Canada, uh, a couple of writers from Brazil, uh, a brilliant um, independent researcher, Sumitra Ghosh, who works on the ground with uh, land-based, mostly forest activists uh, in India, um, and also a couple of authors from uh, Southern Africa. And in each case, folks have met some serious challenges to try to come to terms with the climate-related abuses that <clears throat> their communities, excuse me, or the communities that they're, they're working in, in some cases for a very long time, are facing. But um, the examples of their organizing efforts are, are, are truly exemplary. We start with uh, a story of indigenous people in Eastern Canada, mostly Innu people who have been fighting dams now for 20 or 25 years. And some of their struggles have been successful. For example, an effort that's not really described in a lot of detail in the book, because it was way back in the early 90s that prevented a, a massive dam project right at the juncture of James Bay and Hudson Bay. But in response to the cancellation of that project, which was a huge international effort, um, the utilities in Canada, particularly Hydro-Quebec, have been trying to dam up all of the smaller and medium-sized river systems in southern Quebec all the way out to, to Labrador. And the indigenous communities have been holding firm and trying to maintain their, their integrity and their way of life in the face of uh, tremendous odds. Um, we have an organizer from northeastern Brazil who's been working simultaneously against petroleum extraction and also uh, the destruction of forests in order to build commercial timber plantations. You know, there's a, a myth in the some of the mainstream climate world that if we plant enough trees, we can hold the climate crisis at bay, but when native forests are replaced by monoculture plantations, especially as in this case of eucalyptus trees that grow very fast and are, are cut down, whether for uh, timber or more often for, for paper pulp uh, at a rapid pace, just a few year cycle, that's incredibly destructive to the land and the exposure 
of those issues has uh, held back some of the worst excesses of those kinds of efforts. Uh, Sumitra Ghosh from India writes about how uh, the movement of forest-dwelling people in India has been so strong that the government actually passed a couple of laws to not only protect forests, but give forest-dwelling communities a lot more rights, a lot more say over the future of the land that they depend on. But so, some of that legislation has also been weakened and co-opted, and people are continuing to struggle and understand that even when it looks like you're winning, you can't necessarily rely on the institutions of the nation state uh, to get what we what we want and what we need uh, in South Africa, which is has one of the highest levels of per capita energy consumption in the world, even though it's a a poor country in, in many, many regions. Um, it's been difficult to articulate and act on the kind of climate justice understanding that we've been talking about uh, because of a number of very unique political factors. And Patrick Bond, who's one of the authors of that chapter, who some listeners may be familiar with, has been one of the most articulate critics of South African government policy for many, many years. Moving yeah. on to the second half. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, continue. Yeah, moving on to the second half, kind of the bridge chapter that brings together the resistance and the alternative building. And really one of my favorite chapters in the book is by two longtime practitioners of agroecology from Puerto Rico. And they talk about, of course, the consequences of Hurricane Maria, the devastating hurricane that uh, wiped out many Caribbean communities back in 2016. It was immediately following the, the hurricane that devastated parts of Houston, which of course was much more in the news here. Um, but they talk about the rebuilding from the hurricane. They talk about how farmers who had adopted more sustainable and holistic and regenerative methods uh, relying on the principles of agroecology, which has been around for a couple of decades, but is really having a resurgence now and really represents the, I think, the an incredible synthesis of traditional indigenous knowledge about how to grow food combined with leading edge science to carefully document which practices are most successful and are likely to be most successful uh, in uh, particular climates and particular kinds of growing conditions. And they show how the farms that had long been using agroecology methods were able to set an example that really had a profound effect on the overall character of the rebuilding from the hurricane uh, all over Puerto Rico. Um, we hear from a couple of activists in Cochabamba, in Bolivia, who have been active in one case in water issues for uh, more than 20 years. Marcela Oliveira is one of the authors and her brother um, 
Oscar Oliveira is a name some people might remember as really the main spokesperson of the so-called Cochabamba Water War back in 2000-2001, where the water system for the city had been turned over into the hands of a a private company that turned out to be a subsidiary of the Bechtel Corporation out of San Francisco, Mm -hmm. major global construction firm, uh, drove up the cost of water, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a huge popular uprising in Cochabamba back then that uh, succeeded in driving Bechtel away and getting the water system mostly back into the hands of the community. What's been happening since is people in communities around uh, Cochabamba, as well as in Brazil, I mean, as well as in Brazil, have been building uh, locally scaled, community-based and community-owned water catchment systems to basically capture rainwater and do it in a way that is aimed at really meeting the needs of people in the community. Uh, We have a chapter from Detroit talking about the rebuilding from the collapse or uh, departure in many cases of the auto industry Mm -hmm. and how uh, with the population decline in Detroit, people have been using open land to grow food, to grow community at the same time. A couple of different outlooks on the whole notion of a just transition It's an idea that goes back to the early years of the environmental justice movement when environmental justice and labor activists started to come together to say, well, we have people whose livelihood depends on extremely toxic forms of production. How can we organize in a way that meets those people's needs as well? And we have a critique and assessment of how the just transition paradigm has unfolded and could continue to unfold from both an indigenous perspective, from Tom Goldtooth, the founder of the Indigenous Environmental Network, which I mentioned, and from an eco-feminist scholar from Canada, from Taryn Giacomini, also adding more layers of of nuance and understanding to that critique. Uh, We have one of the leaders of the Green City Movement in Europe, talking about some of the progress that they've made uh, on the municipal level by encouraging the development of alternatives and heating and transportation and uh, green spaces and, and all the things that matter. And we conclude with some stories from New York State of various groups trying to implement uh, the principle of not just a just transition, but also energy democracy, which is an outlook that focuses on community ownership of renewable energy and renewable resources in general. So that's a very quick overview of many of the chapters. And there's obviously a tremendous amount more to say about about every one of them. I hope people check out the book. It's published by Rutledge. Um, It's been around for a couple of years. It came out really at the height of the COVID lockdown. So it was hard to get for a few months, but we're just getting the word out about it uh, a little more right now. Well, I, I, very quick, but I think very thorough. And I you touched on more chapters than I was expecting. So thank you very much for that. 
Uh, so again, I think overall, and again, I I, I want to end with this. Uh, it seems like, and you you talked about this in a couple of your synopses of the chapter. It seems very easy to focus on metrics, you know, it plant more trees, etc. But I think a, a good case is made that, and I'm actually going to steal this quote directly from you: that climate, the climate system is not a technical problem, but it's a systemic problem, which sadly is much harder to fix. That is very true. And it goes back to uh, what we were talking about before, the overwhelming influence of the fossil fuel industry and mm-hmm. other extractive industries, both in our politics and politics around the world. And uh, it's really going to take uh, a very different way of thinking, and I would argue ultimately a, a different economic system uh, that we mm-hmm. can gradually work our way toward as we try to empower communities to implement the kinds of alternatives that we know are possible and that we know are necessary. Well, I will, again, I, I lied, I'll, I'll steal one more quote from the book. And you know, the book does end with the idea, when do we start literally right now? So I, I think that's a great way to kind of sum this up a little bit. So I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Brian. Great to talk with you. And I hope folks will check the book out. I do, too. And for everybody listening, the book is Climate Justice and Community Renewal, Resistance and Grassroots Solutions. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.